borders exist because we as people acknowledge and say that that's where the border is. Hello, and thank you for downloading. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world, an aspect of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, Ian Oliver, also known as the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture, and the whys behind travel itself. So join me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. podcast was a bit delayed for purely administrative reasons. I want to get back into a regular groove with these pods, well as regular as I tried to be when I first started, and my aim is to get them to drop on a Thursday morning. My plan, going forward, is to release one episode every two weeks, as I think the nature of them means that that gives me plenty of time to collect contributions, write and record it. And the actual recording and editing doesn't take that long, it's a few hours, but 70% of that time is listening to the pod at least twice to make sure there aren't any glaring errors in it. This is after the fun and games I had with the third podcast I did, which I'm still convinced isn't quite right, and if I had my way, I'd do that one again completely from scratch. Maybe I will one day, who knows. On that note, by the way, upcoming episodes of this podcast will be on subjects like uh, West Africa, for reasons I'll come on to in a minute, London, Ethical travel and the right to criticise a destination or people that travel to it, which is quite pertinent at the moment. Luggage and why people carry what they do. Privilege in travel. Mental health and travel. Disability and travel. And whether you travel differently at different ages, whether you go to different places or have a different outlook on why you travel. If any of you want to contribute to any of these podcasts, let me know. I'm looking for, as you probably know, between about 10 seconds and 3 minutes on most of them. And it doesn't matter about quality or format too much. I seem to be able to convert anything. And the audio software I use to edit, Audacity, it's open source, seems pretty good at making things sound vaguely mellifluous. Even my voice. Anyway, hello. I hope the new year is bringing you lots of joy. Or at least not making you sink into the depths of, oh my god, is it still only halfway through the month? Did you make any resolutions? I mean, I didn't. I haven't done for several years. The last one I made was the somewhat tongue-in-cheek, I resolved not to make any this year, and, you know, I've pretty much kept to it. As you know, though, I'm slowly starting to do more things rather than just sit at home browsing Twitter. I've been posting a lot on my blog over the last month, mostly about my adventures in West Africa some years back, hence why a podcast episode is on the cards. Oh, yeah, lest I forget, lest I forget... Back at the Traverse Travel Blogger Conference in 2016, 2016, I attended a workshop around the concept of turning your travels into a book. I had a chat afterwards with the lady taking it, and she said, yes, my West Africa trip sounded like a great thing to write about, because it's a part of the world that, in the UK at least, is little known and little written about. Well, it's taken over three years of my staring at a Word document going, hmm, but prompted by my blog post marathons in the last month, I can at last say... It's reached the point where it needs editing. I mean, it's complete, but obviously it's still quite raw, so it won't be being released yet. But at least I'm well on the way now to becoming a proper author. (laughs) I'm still none the wiser about any future plans, 
but I should have at least a couple of things decided upon by the time of my next pod, one of which is not at all travel or career related, but rather something that will be more of a, a sense of achievement if I manage it. It does partly depend on if I can shift this cult that my lodger so kindly gave to me for her birthday, because obviously that's the thing these days, isn't it? In the same way that people working in offices often bring cakes in to celebrate their birthday, my lodger brings grubby bacteria. Meh. One thing I am starting to do is going out and socialising with people. Several of the items on my ought-to-be-doing spreadsheet that I mentioned last time is to, well, I use the phrase on the spreadsheet, find my tribe, for several of my hobbies and interests. So Tuesday night, even, I went out and met a few people in a pub in Nottingham I didn't even know existed, to be honest, but then I really head that way and I really walk down that road. I may have another completely different hobby, meet up on Sunday in Newark, but I'm also supposed to be playing pool in Oxford. Every so often, one of my friends recreates his stag night, which involved us, several of us going on a pub crawl around craft beer and real ale pubs in Leeds, and then playing pool the next day. And we celebrate this by doing the same thing in other cities across the UK at random intervals in the year. And this weekend coming up, we're in Oxford, apparently. I'm also scheduled, next Tuesday, to speak in front of the local Yes Tribe about the hike I did last year. It was, after all, as a result of the Yes Tribe's Yesterval that I was motivated enough to commit to doing it, so it'll be interesting to talk back to them about how it went. I've been tasked with writing about it for them too, so that will also be quite fun. So, on to this podcast, I guess. It's going to be quite an unusual one this time. It's very political and opinionated, quite direct, and with only one guest contributor but I felt it was an important contribution in light and context of the subject. The last edition of the podcast, if you remember, was on crossing international borders. And when I was making it, I felt there was a whole side to it that I simply couldn't fit into that episode. It's all about the effects of borders, the history of them, and how there's more to them than just a line on the ground. Or, indeed, sometimes even less to them than a line on the ground. See, international borders define a country. And in principle, this is very simple. But in practice... One of the reasons I don't count the number of countries I've visited is because it's perhaps surprisingly difficult to define what a country is. I mean, we all know what a country is, right? It's an area of the world with defined borders, a government that controls that area within those borders, and a people who have citizenship assigned by that government, right? Unfortunately, it's not always that simple. There is a road in eastern Moldova, in Europe. It's a very straight road, greyish tarmac, trees either side. It's the sort of place that, with a bit of snow, wouldn't be out of place in a 1980s Cold War spy thriller. After a few kilometres, in the middle of the road, there's a small porter cabin-type building. Outside this building await a couple of uniformed police. They check your passport and give you a piece of paper. It's a registration form that you need to fill in and give to the main police station in the city of Tiraspol. Then they let you on your way. This is no ordinary police stop. Or rather, this is an unofficial national border. Beyond this point lies Transnistria, a place with its own police, military, currency, government, transport network, passports, different language even. It's a fully functioning country. Except that it doesn't exist. It is often referred to as the Breakaway Republic of Transnistria. It's nominally a part of Moldova. Almost nobody recognises it as an independent state, and it's generally ignored in world politics. Most people don't even know of its existence. However, it's been running its own affairs since a war of independence as far back as 1992 ended in stalemate, an effective victory for the Transnistrians. Its lack of international recognition means that, for example, its currency, the Transnistrian ruble, is virtually worthless outside the country, and you may have trouble leaving Moldova if you enter from Ukraine, since Moldova considers you've entered the country illegally as you haven't passed an official border post. 
But when you're in Transnistria, there's no evidence you're in Moldova. No feeling that you're still in the same country. It feels like a completely different place. It does also feel like it's a completely different time. It looks a bit like 1985. But that's a different issue. It may seem strange that such a situation exists, especially in Europe, as the common perception would be that such places would be stamped out or formally given independence. But there's a lot more of these places in the world than you might imagine. Parts of the world whose status is undefined, but where life still continues as normal. Two other examples include Somaliland, which is a stable, safe part of Somalia that's been running its own affairs for about 20 years, without reference to the official Somali government in Mogadishu that have found it troublesome to control anything. Somaliland even has consulates in neighbouring Ethiopia and Djibouti, as well as here in the UK, and the only connection it has to Somalia is that no one recognises it as anything other than a Somali province. Uh, Another one is Kurdistan, a self-governing part of Iraq that has suffered none of the problems in history that Arab Iraq has undergone. It's a completely separate visa regime, its own army that's fighting in Syria, and two years ago formalised its independence by virtue of a referendum that virtually nobody noticed or cared about, unlike Scotland. The world's littered with these semi-states. Some of them, like Abkhazia, have broken free at the behest of a larger foreign nation, whilst others, such as Puntland, have taken advantage of a power vacuum around them to further their cause. And yet the opposite is also true. Entities that are, to all intents and purposes, independent, but which choose to legally align themselves to a larger state in name. The most confusing example to me of this are the crown colonies of the Queen of the UK, Guernsey, Jersey, the Isle of Man. They have their own parliaments, their own money, they're not in the European Union, they're not technically British citizens, their only connection to the UK is the monarch, and yet yet they're not actually independent countries, and are never considered thus, despite, one could argue, having even more of control of their affairs than a European Union state does. I'm not suggesting that they should be independent, I'm just confused as to why they're not. The most contentious case of independence is that of Kosovo, a breakaway republic of Serbia. It's recognised as independent by a little over half the UN, although naturally not by many countries with separatist organisations present in their own countries. For instance, despite a strongly worded suggestion from the European Union Parliament, Spain refuses to ratify Kosovo's nationhood. It's a member of several international bodies, including the IOC, FIFA and the World Bank, yet two of the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, Russia and China, obviously, refuse to acknowledge its existence. Entering Serbia from Kosovo is tricky, as Serbia considers the Kosovo borders to be invalid. They consider anyone coming that way as having entered illegally. There are no Serbian border guards at the Kosovo frontiers to stamp you into Serbia. In addition, there is a large Serbian population in northern Kosovo. The border is the Ibar River, and the town of Mitrovica is a flashpoint. This is one of the reasons these places stay so long in a transitory state, of course, because more powerful countries don't want to be seen to accept that borders are flexible and can, or indeed should, change over time. Plus, of course, some of these countries have their own separatist organisations, as I say, so they don't want to be seen giving theoretical support for similar organisations in other countries. After all, Spain can hardly champion Kosovo and independence while simultaneously cracking down on Catalonian separatism. Not that more powerful countries aren't immune to hypocrisy, of course. Russia's refusal to acknowledge Kosovo contrasts interestingly with their joyful acceptance of Abkhazia. But of course the Russians would say, well that's fine, Abkhazia's on our side. But in general, the standard line is, we have a principle to uphold the current borders, because if we start breaking them, chaos will ensue. Ah yes, the principle of territorial integrity. What a load of bollocks. See, borders themselves are, mostly fake, created by humans rather than nature based on events that occurred at the time. Even in living memory, the countries of Europe looked very different. I've been to Belgrade three times, and each time it's been the capital of a different country, with different borders. But of course that's okay, because we were on the side of the independent movements. And maybe that's what irks me the most. The fact that when it suits the international community, border changes, indeed independent countries, can be created, enacted, with a lack of fuss. 
It's just that it's not consistent and therefore not terribly fair. Maybe it's when countries don't matter. A very Western-centric view that considers Moldova, 13,000 square kilometres, GDP of $5.3,000 per capita, 133rd in the world, to matter more than, say, Sudan, 718,000 kilometres squared, a GDP of $4.4,000 per capita, 136th in the world. I never heard Spain complaining when Slovenia broke from Yugoslavia, or when Czechoslovakia split in two. I mentioned Sudan, of course, because one of the newest countries in the world, South Sudan, recently split from Sudan to the joy of the international community, because the South Sudanese wanted their independence, and who are we to stop them? They even checked in with a referendum in 2011 that saw a 98.8% vote in support. Not the referendum to mean anything, of course. Point of interest, my research has only brought up three independence referendums that were rejected. You can probably guess what one of them was. Uh, two of them were for the same place. The Canadian province of Quebec rejected independence in 1980, where only 40.4% of people voted yes, and 1995, where 49.4% voted yes. It'll happen one day. Africa as a whole, though, really brings home just how fake that international borders can be. Most of the current borders in Africa were drawn on maps in Victorian times in smoke-filled hotel rooms by old white men over glasses of whiskey. People who'd never set foot in those places and nor had any intention to, purely for their and their country's benefit rather than any desire for the people on the ground. Have you ever wondered why Namibia has that weird panhandle in the north? It's because the British and the Germans negotiated to allow German access to the Zambezi River in return for their surrendering control of Zanzibar and Heligoland to the British. That the river proved unnavigable in the end not only shows just how pointless the whole thing was, but also how little they knew and how little they cared. All they were interested in were lines on the map, in effective control. This has caused issues that have remained to the present day. Apart from the stereotype of Africa being the continent of civil wars, Biafra, Zaire, as was, Angola, etc., caused in the main because the borders we drew don't reflect the identities that exist on the ground, the borders themselves can be, shall we say, optional. As you've already heard, I've seen this for myself in West Africa, where calling them porous is a compliment. These borders divide tribes, ancient kingdoms, and the local people respond by, well, ignoring them. The line of people crossing from Benin to Togo do so by handing over a small amount of local currency to the border guards who let them through. No ID, no checking, because to them the border should not and does not exist. It's a win-win situation. The locals cross easily, the border guards get a little backhander for doing no admin. At least this maintains the pretense. Between Ghana and Burkina Faso, there's a trail that circumvents the border post on the road that's used by almost everyone and far too easy to come across accidentally. By following the procession of small motorbikes and people carrying trading goods, you can accidentally find yourself on the wrong side of the border. And no one notices. Another problem with the concept of the inviability of borders can be found when you look at the breakup of the Soviet Union into the 15 countries that were previously its top-level administrative republics, or SSRs. During the course of the history of the Soviet Union, the borders between these regions were frequently changed, territory transferred from one SSR to another, sometimes to reward the local first secretary, sometimes to quell separatism by splitting people of the same ethnicity into different republics. Of course, internationally this didn't matter. What a country does to its own internal borders is no business to anyone else. However, upon the breakup of the Soviet Union, those borders became the fixed edges of independent countries, meaning internal disputes often became full-scale wars. Obviously, Nagorno-Karabakh, now called Artsakh, and Crimea are two well-known flashpoints caused by this very issue, Crimea having been transferred from the Russian to the Ukrainian Republic in 1954, apparently, and interestingly, against the will of the Crimean people, thus making the 2014 Russian invasion, shall we say, complex. But a quick glance at the map of Central Asia shows the true absurdity of Soviet internal affairs. 
Not only are Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan and Uzbekistan quite weird shapes, but there's an incredibly large number of enclaves and exclaves, mainly because Stalin redrew the boundaries to prevent strongly nationalistic republics emerging, actively splitting ethnic groups and creating multinational republics. Well, that was always going to end well. It works the other way as well. All of the SSRs became independent in 1991, but they're not all of the SSRs that existed. So, for example, Karelia was a top-level SSR of the Soviet Union from 1940 to 1956, when it was re-merged into the Russian SSR. If you're going to take border sovereignty seriously and view internal borders as being sacrosanct just in case they ever become external ones, then Karelia should be an independent country. It isn't, and few people are suggesting it should be, but then this happened after Crimea was transferred to Ukraine. So, you know... And yet these same borders, illegitimate and or purely expedient, a product of colonialism, of divide and rule, are fiercely adhered to under the principles of inviability. Yet borders are easily made and easily withdrawn. Life continues as it did, regardless of which side of a border you live on. It's pretty clear, therefore, the only people who benefit from territorial integrity are those that are already in position of power. This feeling was reinforced in my head last year, when I landed back in the UK after one of my trips abroad. I landed in Gatwick and went through passport control. A pathway demarcated with a tensor barrier, patrolled by men with uniforms and guns. And my first thought was genuinely, what are you trying to defend? And while that sounds like a really simple question to answer, consider this. What makes us so different from everyone else? What makes any nation different from its neighbours? Different enough that we have to put up these barriers, not just physical, but also economic, psychological and administrative, to stop people just like us from coming in. If you moved any border two kilometres to the west, do the people affected change in any way? Do they start hating the people they used to be and used to be like? Do they suddenly become something different mentally? And why should we be scared of people just like us? What makes us believe we're special? Are we just selfish and not want to share what we have with the rest of the world? Do we lose anything by being open? Do we gain anything by hiding behind walls? What if I had a business and wanted to trade with West Africa? What if I found a job in the UK that would be perfect to my friend in Germany? What if I fell in love with an American and wanted to live in the UK with her? Do you know how hard that is? I'm not going so far as to suggest the abolition of all borders. Hey, my passport would be far less interesting. But I certainly believe that the concept of the border is far more of a debatable and movable feast than most people would hold dear. And that's one of the great things about concepts like Schengen. Borders no longer matter as such and people can move, live, work freely wherever they like. This leads me on to my guest contributor. You've heard from her many times before, but I want to give the rest of the episode over to her as she has a lot to say about this side of the subject, and from a fairly nuanced standpoint. She has two master's degrees that link into the topic of borders, and has herself seen and experienced at first hand the effects that borders can have. Ladies, gentlemen, and esteemed friends, I give you Laura Lundell. As travellers, who are privileged enough to have the capability to see the world, it might be easy to forget the borders are not merely annoyances that sometimes result in us having to wait a long time in a crowded airport. Most of us listening are probably from countries whose passports are mostly waved through. The longest wait I've ever had was two hours in Lisbon, because I happened to get in line right after a plane had landed from somewhere in Africa. Every person in front of me was talking to the border agent for several minutes. By the time I finally got up there, they barely looked at my picture before waving me through. White privilege at its absolute height, I thought as I walked away, feeling like absolute shit about it. Further, many of us will have the financial situation that allows us to study abroad. Some of you might even be from countries that have free movement arrangements with other countries that allow you to live elsewhere for either a short amount of time or for the rest of your life. With this background, it might be difficult for many to remember what borders often actually are. Graveyards. 
And as the privileged ones in this world, we need to fight for those with less of a voice. Immigrants are some of the most vulnerable people in the world, and not because they themselves are weak, but because the governments they live under make them so. In fact, the narrative that immigrants are weak is one that many on the left deploy because they like to think of themselves as saviors. But in reality, immigrants are likely to be some of the toughest people you will ever meet. It takes a certain type of personality to uproot one's life and move far away. Further, the tests they are put through in their new countries will solidify that toughness. I work in immigrant rights after having received two master's degrees related to European and British immigration policies. I'm also an immigrant myself, whose life was destroyed by the policies that are put in place to do just that, hurt those who have decided to try and live in a country that isn't the one they were born in. But I'm not really going to talk about my experience or my mental health issues that have come from it, save for a brief example following in a few minutes. Instead, I want to focus on the experience that led me to become an immigrant advocate in the first place, and then the situation more generally. I lived in rural Senegal from 2014 to 2016. And in that time, I went to the funeral of two young men from my village who had drowned in the Mediterranean Sea. They were both about 20 years old. They were two of the best educated people in the village. And despite the fact that they spoke five languages and had passed the international baccalaureate with high marks, neither found work in Dakar because, well, the economy of the region isn't exactly known for its great opportunities. They tried to move to France, but couldn't find a legal route through which to do it, because nearly all developed countries have made it nigh impossible for foreigners to come. And instead of spending their lives in the village, where there was exactly zero hope of advancement for themselves or their families, they chose to make the several thousand kilometer trek through the Sahara to Libya. They paid traffickers an enormous sum, and they got into a flimsy boat. The boat itself didn't sink, but it was overcrowded, and they both fell into the sea. Their futures, and their families' futures, were snuffed out in a matter of minutes, all because of border controls imposed by one of the world's richest countries to keep out some of the world's poorest. But how did we get here? Borders and border control might seem like a permanent part of our societies, something that comes across as natural and normal, but in reality, border control is a relatively new concept in human history. Of course, there have always been borders, but prior to the First World War, there was very little broad enforcement against travelers or immigrants. There was targeted enforcement against specific groups, like, for example, the Jewish and Roma populations in Europe for hundreds of years. The world of yore was certainly not a utopian place of free movement. But the system that we have today, which involves those long lines at airports and extremely strict policies that keep out the vast majority of would-be immigrants, only began a century ago. And of course, movement patterns are very different now than they have ever been. But the system that we have in place is an immense overreaction to those patterns. From a European perspective, modern border controls and immigration policies began following the end of the wars and decolonization. After the collapse of the various empires, many citizens from those colonized countries moved to Europe because they were actively invited, in order to help rebuild after the war. And it's a bit ironic, I think, that the Europeans were so proud of their empires and what they were doing to other countries, but were suddenly horrified when their own countries had foreigners in them. Or, should I say, quote-unquote foreigners as, at least in the British context, those from the empire held the same legal status as those from the mother island itself. But the government felt it owed nothing to those who came. They only cared, and to this day only care, about the opinions of those who were born on the island. This reaction was common throughout Europe, with the culmination today that nearly all Western countries in Europe or North America or Oceania have enacted policies that have cut off nearly all legal routes for immigration. 
and indeed they also go after migrants already in those countries, making life miserable for people until they are either forced to leave, as I was, or they choose to leave, because nobody wants to be mistreated and harassed for simply existing. One example of this, which is one that British listeners should be aware of, is the Windrush scandal. Hundreds of senior citizens who came to the UK as children were deported back to the Caribbean. The government literally sent them there with Jamaica 101 pamphlets, which included tips on how to fake a Jamaican accent. And if you want to know where this stands in British politics, in the recent 2019 election, the Windrush scandal was barely mentioned. One of the most heinous scandals I have ever heard of anywhere in the world, and the opposing parties didn't see the need to discuss it when mentioning the policies they dislike about the current governing party. Let that sink in for just a minute. And what people who dislike immigrants often tend to forget is that these policies aren't going to change people's situations that made them leave in the first place, whether it be violence in their home countries or just a lack of economic opportunity. People who want to leave to find safety and security are going to leave anyways, and if they're forced to seek this life by getting into a flimsy boat or darting across a hot desert, they're going to do it. Further, European ships are often given explicit orders to not aid boats in distress, and if they do help, they're usually required to carry them back to Libya, where torture and slavery awaits. Remember that the next time you think about the fact that the EU was granted a Nobel Peace Prize back in 2012. Meanwhile, in America, the government was shut down last year for five weeks because the president wanted to spend billions of pounds to erect a wall that would do very little to change current immigration patterns in the country. Over a million federal employees went without pay for more than a month, many having to resort to using food banks all in order to keep the land of immigrants free of immigrants. Despite the fact that the vast majority of people who live in the U.S. without the correct paperwork are visa overstayers rather than people who came across the border. Thousands of families have been separated from one another, and they will have mental health consequences for the rest of their lives because of it. Not to mention that several American citizens have been given prison sentences because they dared to give water to these people who are crossing the hot Arizona desert. So borders, they're not just annoyances. They're deadly. Let me tell you some ways in which legal migrants are treated in the UK, as that is both my personal experience as well as my academic and professional one. And while these next few minutes are devoted to how the UK treats people, keep in mind that Canada is basically the only country I know of that doesn't do horrible things to their foreign residents. The UK is considered by most experts to be one of the worst offenders, but it's by no means the only one. So if you are British, I hope that you learn something and that you fight for those who are not given a vote and thus will always be ignored and scapegoated by the government. And for everybody else, please do research into what your own country does and help to protect your neighbors. Okay, so here goes with the UK. The first thing you should know is that the system is literally called the hostile environment. The government literally calls its immigration system the hostile environment. Clue number one. Next up, the border itself. Now, before I ever lived in the UK, I visited many times as a tourist, and I never had a problem with the border agents. But as soon as I had a student visa and my passport, everything changed. Every single time that I left the country for a weekend getaway, I would come back to an interrogation as to what I was doing in the UK, why I had decided to leave my own country, was I really a genuine student, etc., etc. This despite having a valid visa. I was made to feel very unwelcome each time I returned. And I am also well aware that I am from a very privileged country. Had I been from a different country, that greeting would have been even worse. And a few months after I left, I went back to visit my boyfriend. 
the interrogation I got in a side room that time was so bad that I shook like a leaf for hours afterwards. And the contrast to all the welcome to the UK signs in the airport was quite startling. My boyfriend and I visited mainland Europe twice during that month, and both times coming back it was the same story. And I've since been diagnosed with PTSD. This diagnosis isn't just those border interactions, of course. It was the entire process of losing my whole life, of knowing all these policies in depth, knowing just how awful things are for everybody in the UK, and how unwelcome and unwanted I was and everybody else is. And despite my skin color, native language, and education level, I still got quite a bit of anti-migrant stuff said to me in London. And again, I recognize that I am absolutely the migrant whose experience in the UK will have been the least bad, and I still have a lot of stories to tell about this. Despite having two master's degrees from top British universities in very British-specific things, I was unable to remain in the country despite doing everything I could to stay, because the government has basically barred British companies from hiring foreigners unless they are engineers or bankers. Even the NHS has begged the government to issue more visas because of a dire doctor shortage, and the government has mostly ignored them. It was devastating to lose the life I'd established for myself. I collapsed and sobbed on the floor of Gatwick Airport the morning I left, and my depression was so bad for months afterwards that I struggled to get out of bed, and I had to go on benefits in my home country. I'm not as bad as I was, but I cannot imagine ever truly being healthy again. For those who are allowed to stay, the government actively enacts policies that make immigrants' lives a living hell, with the end goal that people will eventually grow tired of being mistreated and will choose to leave. Examples include doctors and landlords being turned into immigration agents, so your immigration status is checked during mundane tasks. And at one point, literally, and this is not a sick joke, the government hired vans with giant go-home banners on the sides and drove them around London. The fines for landlords are so steep that a full quarter of them say that they will never rent to somebody without British citizenship. Dozens of migrants' families have come forward explaining that their relatives are dead because they were denied care at the NHS because of their inability to prove that they were in the UK legally, despite all of them having held that right. And it's not always that migrants themselves cannot provide proof, but it is also because the Home Office has made it so complicated that the NHS, landlords, schools, employers, and even lawyers struggle to comprehend what is happening, and they choose, understandably, to protect themselves from the massive fees that the government will impose. Speaking of fees, since 2012, there has also been an ever-increasing fees for necessary annual paperwork. It currently costs the average non-EU immigrant, all men, women, and children who have not obtained permanent residency, £800 a year in government fees. So for a family of five, that is £16,000 handed to the government every five years, solely in admin fees. And that's £16,000 right now. The fees increase every single year, so in reality, it will be more than that. In fact, many of the immigrants who have had to leave, they leave solely because they can no longer afford the government fees. And for those who choose to remain in their homes, even though they can't afford it, they become unlawful citizens overnight. And, I mean, is there anything worse supposed crime than that of illegal immigration in the eyes of a 21st century populism? That same boyfriend who I was visiting in London, his father voted leave in the Brexit referendum because he didn't want any more immigrants in the country, even though he knew that his son was dating an immigrant. And when I told him about the two boys who had drowned, his response was a very cold, well, they shouldn't have tried to be illegals. Imagine saying that about two dead 20-year-olds who hadn't harmed anybody. Two dead kids who were only forced into those boats because the policies that now exist gave them no other option in a world where 
There are no jobs. They had no other options. As I've said earlier, strict border policies don't deter these patterns. They simply kill more people. But we've dehumanized everybody so much that an older man can simply sit there and say they shouldn't have tried to be illegals. Not even people. Illegals. Anyways, these fees do not only affect immigrants, they also affect British citizens as well. For example, more than 40% of British citizens are not allowed to live in the UK with their families if they marry a foreigner. This includes 55% of British women. This is because, again, in 2012, the government implemented a minimum salary requirement that 40% of people and 55% of women do not make. The government is literally barring poor people from living with their families. I spent the last year living in China, and three of my coworkers were British citizens living in China with their Chinese wives because they were unable to live in the UK. One of them went home to visit over the summer and came back with a very similar story to mine. He told me that his wife had told him that she never wants to visit his country again because of just how awful the border agents were to her. And the UK is actually ranked dead last of all developed countries in regards to family rights for migrants, whether or not a British citizen is involved. And the UK is also one of, if not the, I think it is the, but I'm not entirely sure, most expensive system. And unfortunately, this trend is only going to get worse under the new government. And why wouldn't it? The UK has made clear that foreigners are unwelcome, and those who disagree with that sentiment are mostly silent. Again, the fact that something as egregious as the Windrush scandal could happen and barely warrant a mention during the next election cycle is a good indicator of where that country is at right now. Further, with the government cuts across the board, part of the justification for those 800% profit fees is to supplement what the government is no longer spending. This is only going to get worse. Anyways, that's a quick overview of the hostile environment. Lawyers, courts, and even the UN have called it cruel, and most experts say it's even worse than Trump's America, which I'm sure we can all agree is a very high bar indeed to surpass. And the UK is just one country. As I said earlier, Canada and maybe New Zealand are really the only Western countries where migrants can live their daily lives truly feeling safe. And this is not to say that they are perfect for migrant rights by any means. No country is, and likely will never be, unless the concept of hard borders is done away with altogether, which is highly doubtful. But this world we have found ourselves in is, in my opinion, a reactionary stage. The mass migrations which have occurred over the past century are new to our history, and we are in the backlash phase. However, hard borders are simply not feasible, especially with climate change ramping up. What we must do instead is recognize reality and work to figure out how best we can ensure that our deserts and seas are no longer the mass graveyards that they are, and that those living in our countries are not treated so horrendously for the simple crime of having been born elsewhere. So, borders, they might seem permanent, they might seem like something that reaches back through the depths of time, but in reality, they're relatively new, and the ruthlessness in which countries across the Western world have begun to enforce them is completely unnecessary, especially considering the human toll it has taken. So next time that you're stuck waiting two hours in some airport, remember that it could be much worse. And please, I implore you, vote in your various home countries to help migrants in your communities. I'm not saying advocate for open borders, but the mistreatment of non-citizens in pretty much all Western countries will be a dark stain in our histories. And we as privileged travelers are perfectly positioned to help, as we are some of the most likely people to appreciate other cultures and the realities of how non-threatening other people are. Thank you. And on that political note, I'll shut up for this episode. Next time will be a location-specific episode, so be sure to tune in to learn more about another destination you may not find in your holiday brochures. Until then, keep fighting the system, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Kirkby and Asheville studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes of this podcast will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next time, have a safe journey. Bye for now.